The general idea I had starting Plural was, okay, I know I can deploy applications really, really repeatedly with like this interesting dependency-based mechanism that we have with Plural, and it would be a, a pretty cool experience. But like, how do you bootstrap a business around it? And the core problem, like if you're creating a marketplace, is like you've got to have some degree of demand in the system for it to, to ever go from zero. You are listening to the Kubelist Podcast, a show interviewing project maintainers for CNCF Sandbox, incubating and graduated projects. We'll discuss each project to understand where it came from and discuss the roadmap and plans to continue the project. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. Together with Benji DeGroot, we publish the Kubelist weekly newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, Puppet, Sneak, Harness, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at replicated.com. Benji is the co-founder and CEO at Shipyard, where they enable software teams of all sizes to build, test, and deploy faster and more reliably via their ephemeral environment management platform. Get started with ephemeral environments at shipyard.build. The Kubeless podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Finally, sign up for the Kubeless weekly newsletter and read previous issues at kubeless.com. On this episode of the Kubeless podcast, Benji and I were joined by Michael Guarino from Plural to talk about his open source platform that helps manage and install open source software in production in Kubernetes. We started out just talking about Michael's background, working on some small teams running large infrastructure, including Twitter and Facebook. Michael shares his experiences, and it's clear that these experiences have caused him to think that we can all manage infrastructure better than we are today. Anyway, Michael goes on to explain the Plural product, what it does, and how they build and maintain it today. There's a lot of really cool stuff here, and hopefully listening to this and looking at the Plural product can help you streamline how you're running production-grade open source software. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Kubeless Podcast. On today's episode, we have Michael Guarino from Plural to talk about his project and how it aims to make it easier to deploy and operate open source applications, hopefully in Kubernetes. We're going to learn all about the project, um, but before we start, as always, Benji's here with me. Hello, hello, hello. All right, so let's start off with some quick introductions and backgrounds. Michael, like, why don't you just start us off with telling us what you did before creating Plural? Yeah, yeah, so I've been basically an engineer the entire of my career. Um, Right out of college, I joined Amazon in Seattle for a couple of years. I was on one of the retail website teams, just doing boring Amazon stuff, I guess. But really, I wanted to go to live in New York, and I did that by joining uh, actually the Vine team at Twitter. So I, I was one of the backend engineers at Vine, which is a pretty cool experience. We actually only had like five backend engineers at peak running all of Vine's platform, uh, and we were running basically all of the open source infrastructure at scale, like our own MySQL, all our own Redis. Um, Memcached, RabbitMQ, actually a pretty big Elasticsearch cluster as well. So I got a lot of hands-on experience of running infrastructure like really, really directly at scale there, which was really, really fun. And then, well, Vine was discontinued in 2016, as everyone knows. Um, had to find a new place. I did not want to work at Twitter any longer. And I ended up leaving back in engineering at Frame.io, where I built most of their core systems as well. So it basically ended up building so much that I had nothing really interesting left to build and went to Facebook and was quickly disillusioned by what I was doing at Facebook. It was like just frankly very boring to me. And I was extremely, extremely bold up about Kubernetes at the time. And what I was seeing was the emergence of standardization of what like a distributed system really should be or defined as. And that really wasn't the case. And it was what caused, I think, a lot of the problems around the manageability of, of a lot of infrastructure because every single company would have their own you know special snowflake setup. They'd just do it their own way. They'd have their own bash scripts, everything like that. And it just became it was just like a constant mess, really. And if you have some degree of industry-wide standard, you can suddenly automate on top of that and make what was now plural the uh, the ability to repeatedly deploy pretty complicated stacks and a lot of different infrastructures a viable possibility. And so that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. So that makes sense. So yeah, the snowflake style deployment definitely, you know, makes it difficult to manage, but I want to go back. So you said at Twitter, when you were working on Vine, there were five infrastructure engineers managing all of that infrastructure at scale. Is that, did I hear that right? Five? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's basically correct. Yeah. And really we had basically two SREs and three people who were doing more like actually building the APIs and everything like that. 
but that was really it. And it was like 50 million monthly active users. And it was like a pretty, like at the time I was completely blown away. I, you know, came from Amazon very much with the opinion that frankly, Amazon should just run everything. It's too hard for, you know, mere mortals to do. And seeing that it actually happened at Vine was like just a complete paradigm shift for me because we were running very complicated infrastructure, like, you know, like, sharded MySQL with multi-master through with, with, with you know master replica be all over for every super shard it, it with like our own cloning procedures and everything and it was actually doable and so it like I had to figure out what that gap was and it was very pretty clear actually like once I sort of teased it all out that the gap was operational knowledge it's just like it really what what's making people build infrastructure this way is a staffing problem they just can't find people who have deep infrastructure experience and the reason you need that deep infrastructure experience is because you have to just know so much in the stack. You have to know Linux fundamentals, then you have to know like the, the various APIs you're actually, interact, actually interacting with, Kubernetes or the, the cloud um, provider APIs. You'll have to know distributed systems fundamentals to do debugging and stuff like that. It's pretty rare to find a, a single human being who can, who can know that. But again, if you have some degree of standard, standard API that you're programming against, you can have a you can have software know all that for you instead of a person, and that completely changes the game. Hopefully, yeah. So I, I imagine at, at at Twitter, in order to 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 do that, or at Vine, sorry, in order to do that, you 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 really did have to like there was not a single snowflake in there. Everything had to conform because like it's a slippery slope once you start doing anything you know off like that doesn't just follow a normal pattern. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the idealized version of that. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah. Wait, so at Vine, were you guys on Kubernetes? This is 2016, I think you said. Is that right? Yeah, so this is really like right at the beginning of a lot of the containerization stuff, and Kubernetes was quite immature. So we were not on Kubernetes. And that's why. Right, but Twitter was Mesos at the time. I yeah, and we were not in Twitter's main infrastructure. That's another interesting interesting detail. So we were actually on AWS, whereas Twitter has its own data centers. And most of the acquisitions had a similar issue. Like Periscope was the same same deal, and they would have to figure out how to interact with core Twitter systems. But like we actually ran everything basically on EC2 machines and like manually operated all of those systems. So that, that was even more bonkers. Like we didn't have a proper orchestration system and we were still able to like basically manage the operations for the entire platform with a very small team. And, and it was because like we had like tons of ex-Google SREs, ex-Amazon SRE, you know. It, it, we had like an extremely cracked team, even by Twitter standards, running the thing. Right, but the, the big takeaway is if you don't have a bunch of Google SREs sitting in your back pocket, uh, it's pretty difficult to do. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it would not happen, for sure. Yeah, yeah, unless like software fills the gap. Right, of course. And what, were you containerized at the time, or was it not even containers? When I first started, it was not containerized at all. And then we tried to start moving to Mesos and Marathon. That's what, uh, like, you know, fitting along with the same, like, scheduling system that Twitter was using. Um, but, like, it was maybe, like, 60 to 70% done, and then, and then Vinos has continued. Right. So you were, you were really pushing a pretty big boulder up a pretty steep hill. Yeah. <laughs> with all of all of that experience. Yeah. All right. So we have to ask: uh, How many fail whales did you did you deal with? I was not early enough in Vine that the that the infrastructure was immature. Uh, the biggest thing that happened there was I don't think you guys remember, but there was that terror attack in Paris in like 2015 when ISIS was really active, and there was a video of like a either AK-47s or a bomb going off at a soccer game or like outside of a soccer game. And it was like the most viewed video on Vine at all, and like in all time. At the, it, it, Vine was killed sort of after it, so like nothing was able to compete for it. Uh, but it, it actually blew up like an entire database chart. It was, it was getting that much traffic. So that, I think that was the biggest outage I remember, mostly because obviously it was also like a pretty historic event, but it, the, the consequence of it being like it, it made us also have to you know, have a pretty interesting on-call rotation. I mean, just just for a second here, I think it's it's worth acknowledging, like you know, the cameras in our pockets, the phones, all that stuff has gotten us to a place where pretty significant news, pretty significant things like that, can get distributed immediately. And yeah. a, a good part of what we're doing here is that we're helping to build out infrastructure that have, actually educates people and, and gives people some some stuff. So there's obviously some downsides to that, uh, as we've seen. Yeah. But there's also some some really powerful positives there. 
So moving, moving on. Um, so then you went to Facebook and what were you using at Facebook? Was that Kubernetes? What was that? Yeah, this is somewhat like public, but not everyone knows. Facebook basically built their own. They've been around long enough. They're like sort of like Google, where they built their own orchestration and containerization system. So they have a system called Tupperware, which is like their analog to org at Google. And I don't know to what extent, like you know, they they poach people from Google to build it, but that that's what they use for orchestration entirely. I think there's some Kubernetes usage, but it's probably more in like the enterprise engineering side. So like back office applications, like the actual production systems all run on Tupperware. And I don't fully know what they use for actually containerizing applications. I don't remember. It's it's they it ultimately resolves down to Linux C groups like the Docker container does, but it's not Docker. It's something completely different. And they have their own like package system as well that like basically you can't roll all of Facebook's servers with like a standard like Docker registry. It, it would actually blow up network switches. So they have to use something that's equivalent to um, like the BitTorrent API to distribute their packages. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 So while you were at, at Facebook, though, you were kind of, it, it doesn't really matter, I guess. Like, I know that, like, you know, we're, this is the Kubeless podcast. We talk about Kubernetes, but like, it's really these like primitives and these common API abstractions around container orchestration and scheduling and running and operating that makes it like that's the value, right? So, Tupperware being an implementation of it, you still start to like say, oh, wow, like I can af- avoid these bespoke solutions, avoid snowflake systems and get scale. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's like some aspects of Tupperware that are like heads and shoulders better than than Kubernetes. So one thing it does is it, it can deploy in multiple regions without um, any real sweat. So it's it, whereas Kubernetes really is completely locked down to a single region, and it does like much larger scale deployments than a standard Kubernetes cluster would be able to manage as well. Like you know deployments with like hundreds of thousands of servers underneath them. Whereas I think a Kubernetes controller would probably start choking for that sort of thing, just based on the way it's architected. But there are also like huge issues with Tupperware in terms of its usability and everything like that. That um, people like who had a Kubernetes background were like, oh, <laughs> I wish I was still using Kubernetes. So. I mean, in fairness, like I've never worked at Google, but like I've heard similar stories about Borg, where like Borg had scale but usability challenges, which is why they rewrote it in you know like Borg, Omega, Kubernetes, and here we are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think it's like inevitable, it, you know, and it's part of that's also just like the open source um, development lifecycle versus like an internal development where you know you can sort of force like weird primitives down your it, down your company's start, but a open source community would sort of revolt at that, and it kind of disciplines you into creating something that's a little bit of a better product. Yeah. And I think one of the things that like I'm excited to, to to dive into here and talk about about Plural is you know these container orchestration. Let's talk about Kubernetes. Like these platforms provide lots of different values. One of them is scale and bin packing and cost reduction. But like like one that I think is the the like a super powerful to even smaller organizations is uh, just that that common API, like the standardization that says this is how all software can actually interact with the infrastructure. And so, yeah. like, I'd love to hear, like, like, give us the pitch of what, what is Plural? What does Plural do? Yeah, so think of Plural as kind of like a package manager for applications to deploy to, to Kubernetes. So um, what we want to give is an experience kind of comparable to, you know, like the NPM add when you add a, a JavaScript library to, like, one of your applications, but for a full stack into your Kubernetes cluster. Um, you can just do Plural Bundle install, like Airbyte, Airbyte and GCP. It'll give you a, a, a wizard of the initial configuration for it. Then you'll do Plural Build. It'll sync all the artifacts locally into your Git repository so you can track the state of the application appropriately and have complete ownership of it. And then Plural Deploy will then take all those artifacts, the Helm charts and Terraform modules and so on and so forth, and create the application in your cloud. But the idea, like, basically... Ultimate goal is you just get completely validated deployment packages that you can deploy wherever you want them. You, you mentioned Helm charts, Terraform modules, and, and, and et cetera. So if I'm I want to run some open source package, do I need Kubernetes, or is, can the Terraform actually like create the Kubernetes cluster for me also? Yeah, that's a good question. It does actually create the Kubernetes cluster for you, so you don't even have to really think about Kubernetes at all to use Plural. Um, it can be considered like an entire implementation detail. And we will create Kubernetes in like the most low operational like effort way. So we'll use the managed managed control planes for the major clouds, you know, like AKS for Azure, EKS for 
AWS and so on and so forth. We also have a pretty featureful admin console. So you deploy your applications, you can also deploy our, our console application, and it'll give you a full administrative suite with all the operational tools you need to understand how to manage the application. So it has things like dashboards and logs, um, it'll receive upgrades over the air. So when we push new versions of a package, it'll actually automatically deploy it for you. Uh, you don't even have to think about upgrades. And then we also have a, a pretty cool like interactive runbook experience. So more complicated things like scaling a database where you probably don't know the underlying you know Kubernetes CRD that's representing that database. You can just have a purely graphical experience where you you know input that new amount of CPU or that new amount of memory to it, or maybe um, you know add a few gigabytes to its underlying disk, and it then click scale and it'll it'll do it all for you. Um, and that system is also extremely flexible, so we can create all sorts of different wizards to do uh, other complicated interactive you know operational tasks with a fully graphical experience. So you don't have to you know learn kubectl or anything complicated like that. So kind of going back, right? So like you know running a database, especially a database in in at scale, distributed, you know, in Kubernetes, you know, it, there's there's lots of challenges. So we as an industry, we're like operators. Um, that's a great abstraction around that. I don't need to understand how to operate that database. There's all these config and everything like this. Yep. I can like have this reconcile loop that's watching it and maintaining the, the desired state. And what you're doing is providing an even easier to use abstraction on top of that. Does it have to be an operator or can it literally just be anything that that's driving through a graphical interface? Yeah, it can it can literally be anything. So some of the um, like InfluxDB doesn't have an operator, but we have a runbook for scaling the InfluxDB deployment that we have. That's ultimately just resolves down to reconfiguring a help chart. Um, so it, it it's meant to be a very flexible system, and it's just a matter of us, you know, adding the, the appropriate plugins to be able to solve for any of those operational issues. But you know, like the. Operators are really simple, but there's a ton of people who are not going to want to learn the, the spec of an operator and like how to interact with them. And if you can just give them a graphical interface that they can that, that they can interact with instead, it's a huge win for them, and, and they'll be able to do things they wouldn't have done otherwise. So this kind of harkens back to your whole software abstraction layer for infrastructure. Yeah, and so really, it's it's a pretty powerful abstraction on top of Kubernetes. And so this is for open source projects, correct? This is like for Elastic or, or MySQL or whatever. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, there's like no technical limitation that would mean that we have to always do open source projects, but it's what we're going to be focused on primarily because there's a ton of people who obviously want to deploy them. They have a ton of adoption already, so we can we can plug right in and, and get a lot of get a lot of users that way. So there's a little bit of a you know a scaling concern there, and it also makes it just a lot easier from like a licensing perspective and stuff like that as well. So um, there's there's a lot of advantages to it. Uh, we hopefully will like emerge like we'll develop to a point where people can deploy their own applications with Plural as well. Like we have a pretty good deployment engine. Our console hopefully is like a really good experience for managing. Any application, not just open source ones, and hopefully people will like really like it and want to want to use it more. So, you're talking like in that scenario is like first party application deployment. Like I have an API that I'm running in Kubernetes, but like you know, like I, I should be able to like have this like this nice like operationalized like in, in in graphical way to be able to manage it if I want it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Like a, one of the big benefits there is like operational handoffs. So if, when you're ramping up like a new DevOps engineer or a new backend engineer, if you have that full suite of like operational tools that they can just jump right into, then it's a it's a really big deal. Um, and then obviously time to response for for incidents. Like the gold standard at Facebook when it, for their foundation teams is they would build web interfaces for like all their common incidents. And do all of their like operations via those web, web UIs because your response time is just that much faster. And if you know what's going to go wrong, like you should be able to automate it to that degree. Um, so, but same sort of principle. I'm curious why that is. Why is a web interface that much faster to be able to respond versus like you know somebody who is able to like access the cluster and run kubectl or whatever the, the Tupperware equivalent of that would be? I think it's just like because if you think of what you do when you're responding to an incident. It's like a lot of data aggregation you're basically doing, right? So you have to view a ton of a ton of metrics to, to understand what actually is going wrong. Then you have to like context switch into a totally different interface and figure out, you know, login or or whatever credentials you have to get access to to, to get kubectl access. It, it just makes it a lot slower. And then a confirmation that you've actually fixed it as well it would be another context switch into another interface. But if you have just like everything in a interactive dashboard or something like that, it, it, you can basically 
do everything in one place and, and understand exactly what's going on and, and fix it. Yeah, I, I really tend to agree with you, Michael. Um, Mark, I've, I've worked with Mark before. He's an amazing engineer. He doesn't understand why some of us aren't as fluent at the CLI as he is. Let's just put it that way. But uh, Mark, not everyone is eat, breathe, and sleeps cube cuddle. Okay, <laughs> so just, just get over it. Okay, it's useful even if you are a, like a batch god, right? All the like the Facebook SREs who are like you know top tier, they're very good with the command line. Um, but the truth is, if you basically have like an existing runbook that you would be executing anyways, that it could easily become a web interface and. You don't have to, you know, go through a doc, then go through another another UI to figure out your, your metrics, and then go through another UI to to figure out how to log into something, and then go to a terminal, and then go back and back and back. So it, it just it, it becomes a much easier, smoother experience. Yeah, no, that's 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 great. Like thinking about it in terms of like you know avoiding the context switching, you end up with this like you know reproducible process that everybody's going through. It's definitely easier to onboard, and you're not like you're not like avoiding the CLI. You're just saying like there's there's the there's a normal way that we can go through this. Like I'm, I'm guessing if I have a Airflow deployed through Pluro, I still have kubectl access to that cluster. If I need to do some kind of advanced like tech, like 100%. operation, that yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. So how you, let's go back and you mentioned the one kind of word we you, you mentioned was like when we I think was the word that you said it when we push new versions of these packages you know like they're easy to get an install and update so is that what Plural does is you're actually taking these open source packages and creating like the the, the package published version that you're recommending that we run yeah so and ultimately this is something we want to also build a community of people doing. But at the moment, we're the primary packager, and for the most part, if like taking Airflow as an example, because it's definitely a good like anchoring example for this. But we'll, what we'll do is we'll find the the best Helm chart out, out in the open source ecosystem, and then hydrate it with the appropriate stuff to create that operational environment, the dashboards, the, the log filters, the, the the run books, and everything like thing like that. Make sure that it's deployed in a production ready way. So we'll figure out how to get you know uh, IRSA. Um, identity for EKS appropriately, or workload identity for GKE, so you have temporary credentials getting injected into the into the cluster. Set up the S3 logging, everything else that you would need for like a full cloud deployment, and then also figure out the persistence layer appropriately. So Airflow has a um, a Postgres database underneath it, so we'll use an appropriate way of deploying a Postgres database. We typically use uh, the Solando Postgres operator for that, but it, it will at least be something with things like you know backup or restore. A failover and all that that you would want instead of you know like a that, that really kind of crappy but not me Helm chart deployment of Postgres, which is what you normally see wrapped up in these charts. Yeah, that's, that was going to be my next question: is like, what are you what are you adding on top of like what Bitnami has? But it sounds like you're really just like instead of here's a million different options on how you could deploy it, which is really great. And it's awesome that Bitnami has these public Helm charts available. But you're actually saying, look, we've put a lot of effort into thinking through what's a sane way to run this in production, so you don't have to understand what all these different options are. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So what our goal is, is to make sure that all of the things that we packaged are production ready, like production grade deployments. And then the other big thing is like, if you do install a Bitnami chart, you're going to have to like, read the charts values file and like really dive in deeply into how it actually works just to install it. So like our installation, like our bundle install process where you basically go through a pretty guided wizard means you don't have to read any like Source code or anything like that to get get up and running. Hopefully, um, it's just a very guided, simple experience, and then boom, you have an application. Then the other big thing with a Banami product is there's no operational environment after you've installed it, and that's to me the biggest problem because like while I might be willing to pay that initial like upfront installation cost, if it comes with a recurring like constant operational headache afterwards. That I'm not going to be confident about it whatsoever, and our admin console and all those operational tools that we've been talking about, um, I think, actually makes it a viable product. That beyond just like the cool, like getting started user experience. Right. So, how do I handle my secrets and my environment variables and stuff like that when configuring this stuff? This is like a really important question. It, basically, all GitOps has this issue, and there's a lot of different um, solutions for it. What we basically did is we re-implemented in our CLI the GitCrypt um, open source project, which uh, it, it'll basically encrypt secrets directly into the Git index itself. So when you push a change to Git with a file that would have a secret, it'll be completely AES-256 encoded in GitHub or 
GitLab or wherever. Um, but then when you check it out and clone it, and then you run plural crypto in it, plural crypto in lock, it will decrypt it entirely for you. And we have ways of managing the symmetric keys and everything like that for people so that they can properly share their repos and stuff like that. But um, that, that's how we manage our secrets. It, it makes it a lot easier to do a lot, to a lot of the automation in terms of generating all those um, repositories. And it's just like a wildly better user experience than all the other um, secret management tools I've seen for GitOps. And then, so like the like at the end, it, it is running as a potentially a secret in Kubernetes. So the chart, if you had an upstream chart table, like you don't have to repackage all that to have a different runtime or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious, how big, first of all, how big is the team at Plural right now? So we're definitely growing. It, if you caught me like a couple of weeks ago, it would be very different. But um, we have now six full-time employees and then three other people who are on as contractors, um, but basically with us full-time. And then we're going to have four more employees coming in by July. That's great. So how, like that's, that's, a, that's a pretty small team. You're trying to build a product and you're trying to maintain the, the, the packaging for these open source projects. So how do you, how do you scale that, right? Like how do you, how many folks and how much work does it take to maintain that airflow package as an example and keep updates available and like understand all the, the changes that are in it and make them available to anybody who's running Plural? Yeah, I mean, the reality is there's definitely going to be a point at which like this can't scale to a single organization. So a big part of what we're doing is we're building this as an open source project with the idea that hopefully we can create a community around it of people who will do some of that work around packaging and maintaining of specific applications or the communities themselves. The Airflow community would be eager to do the packaging for Airflow on Plural um, so we can sort of divide and conquer that workload. There are some interesting details with it, though. So one of them is the kind of the way that Plural is becomes as an architecture is it kind of simplifies things pretty radically. So we're never going to be deploying like some sort of multi-tenant airflow that works for millions and millions of people. It's just an airflow cluster for a single company. It's relatively simple, and it's still a distributed system, and there's a lot of complications around it. But it's definitely something you can kind of get your arms around. And the, the actual amount of work to upgrade a new version of Airflow, it, it ends up being about like a day's worth of work for each individual shot. It, there's, it, it's basically, you know, figuring out the new the new chart version, doing some tests on the various different infrastructures. Now, some scaling hacks that we have done, one is we've used Renovate. So Renovate's a pretty cool tool to um, manage dependencies for a lot of different a lot of different languages, but they have support for Helm and Terraform. So it'll actually give us uh, new issues whenever there's like a new upstream chart change for all of our all the charts that we use. So if there's a new version of the Airflow chart, we'll suddenly get an issue in our Plural Artifacts repo to to pay attention to it. Um, just that that sort of like constant pull of of the things that you're updating is a, is something that obviously causes a lot of work and would have we would have had to create a manual process around if we didn't have that automation. The other big thing that we've done is we've gone through the step of creating a full integration testing framework. So when we push new versions of these applications, that that new you know, bleeding edge version will deploy it to all of our own clusters in AWS, GCP, and Azure, um, and we'll run a basic test on them. Like in, the, in this case, it's running like the, the aggregate health check on the application. If it goes to green, the test passes, and we'll promote that version to a different tag. Um, that actual users can can respond to and and actually get their upgrade off of. So we have a test a full testing suite to deploy these things at scale now as well, which is a, a big it, quality becomes the, the the biggest deciding problem with managing this um, and creating that automation to ensure quality is a is a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one thing I would push back or I, I would have a little concerns on just from real world experience is like you know. I've had plenty of charts that go, let's say, go green, yeah. um, but then I start using it at scale, and all of a sudden, some weird esoteric setting that I had no idea existed <laughs> is like all of a sudden a disaster, and it brings down production. Yeah. So, I mean, I, obviously, the integrated the integration test stuff is a is a huge step on that. But like, I mean, how can I get comfortable if I'm you know Bank of America and I'm using you guys for my Elasticsearch? But are you guys like you know the not that Bank of America uses Elasticsearch, but hypothetically, like how are you guys, or do you guys have plans, I guess is really the question, to like do load testing around these packages, I guess is kind of my question. Yeah, I, I think basically we've only scratched the surface of the integration testing problem. So like, it, there's just like a lot of ways that these things can fail, especially at scale. I, it, I, I doubt like, you know, someone running 
some like, you know, like mass throughput Elasticsearch cluster is going to like be truly validated by an Elasticsearch like integration test we do for the entire platform. One thing we would probably like consider doing is having them have their own promotion pipeline that they can test for their specific infrastructure use case instead of the, the main package pipeline that that we're talking about because it's it's frankly going to be their own configuration. Now, the majority of our users, like the vast majority of our users, basically just use it with like default settings. Use, use a lot of these applications with default settings and they don't have like a really crazy setup. And so like it really does actually validate that it will that, that'll land correctly with them. But yeah, you're 100% right that there will be some edge cases that like people are going to have to figure out themselves <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I mean I just think that's kind of cool though what you guys are building out and and how I could see and maybe I'm going a little crazy here but there could be like a community integration testing effort long term or something where it's like oh well we tested out a canary version of this so we can help you validate stuff like that just from a community perspective it just kind of it's, it's an interesting thought. I I haven't seen that yet but I feel like you know as we grow out all this stuff and how can how can big enterprise contribute to the open source community? One thing that's just tickled my my brain right there is oh maybe we can get them to you know do a bit of integration testing. Um, oh yeah, like, that's actually a pretty cool cool point. Like you could have like that one enterprise with like a massive at scale deployment have, run some tests there and, and like you know have a different like release channel for for the the package if it if it validates that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'd be. Yeah, the, the the framework is actually type, flexible enough to do that sort of thing. So, like we we could actually do that with out of the box with what we currently have. The um, other kind of interesting thing is like I don't think there's like really good solutions for this period on the market right now. It, like no one really does. Like all the testing is is locked into CI/CD. Um, we need to do it this way because of just the nature of what we're doing. So. Like if we're going to truly validate our packages, it kind of needs to be running in infrastructure because it, it, part of the validation is like is IRC working properly with it? We and you can't really tell that unless you actually inspect the result of the of the underlying EKS you know IRC operator and if it injects the service account tokens and all that goodness and and works appropriately. Um, so the, the long term vision of it is we'll have like a full Python SDK that. Can like interact with Kubernetes API and just see if resources are looking the appropriate way, um, and do other like very common. Um, it run like sel- a Selenium tests as well. Like that's one thing we we really want to do for every single application that has a web interface, like, and do like a very basic or or, or deep Selenium smoke test around like logins. If the UI is actually interactive in the way that we'd expect stuff like that. You mean play right, right? Because that's the new hotness. Okay. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, Cypress is. Uh, or and Cypress is great too. I love Cypress as well. Um, no, I, I, I joke. I joke. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's it's super interesting trying to deal with dependency management for other people, which is kind of at the core what Plural seems to be doing. What are my options for for a Canary deploy? So if I'm using Plural and I've got my Elastic cluster running, and then there's a new upgrade that I can. I assume I opt into the upgrade. It's not just automatic, or is it, it? What's the model there? Actually, that's a good question. Is it like etcd, where it just auto, automatically updates, or how does that work? Yeah, you have a number. You have a lot of different controls. So you can control the specific tag you you track. So like we have like three ones that are just out of the box, latest, um, warm, and stable. You can also control in your console on the application level, or there's actually kind of like a holistic policy mechanism for it, but um, the way, what it'll do when it receive, the console receives an upgrade. So you can require approval, you can just apply it, or you can actually ignore the automatic upgrade entirely. Um, we, we also want to do things like maintenance windows and all of those other you know, interesting little um, control features, that, but they're on the roadmap and haven't been implemented yet. As far as a canary deployment, what we'd probably recommend people doing at the moment is Creating both a dev and prod, prod cluster for the for the infrastructure they're creating with Plural, which is very easy to do. Um, there, there's a ton of different ways to skin the cat. It's because we make it really easy for you to create clusters, right? But it, it, you can have you know your your infrastructure running in, in a dev cluster, validate it, um, and then approve it. that's it's, it, either either by tracking a follower tag or by having an approval flow in um, your prod cluster to have it deploy there. So I want to switch gears for a second, like. Um, how does Plural make money doing this? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So 
we kind of have a dual strategy around monetization. The first way that we'll do it is we'll have feature differentiation in the product. We'll effectively have an enterprise tier of plural. And the features that will go into an enterprise tier are very, like, you know, accepted enterprise type features. And one of them we actually recently implemented SSO. So um, Plural actually acts as an identity provider for all the applications that are deployed by Plural. You can, op- you can opt into using our OIDC provider and use Plural to log into your Airflow or log into your Airbyte or log into your, um, uh, your Grafana or, or anything else that you deploy. And you can add SSO to your, uh, to your Plural account now as well with directory sync. And that's going to be offered for people who decide to, to sign up with an enterprise plan. The other, it will, we'll add other features that'll be um, very natural enterprise things, but they'll, they'll all be focused on managing applications at scale, like in a business context. We'll 100% keep keep a good, like you know, small scale tier free and open source as as for the entirety of our existence. The other strategy is the vendor ecosystem that we hopefully will create around Plural. Also, can create some monetization. So we hopefully will get other open source projects actually committing to using Plural as a distribution channel and offering their enterprise licenses on it, and we'll get a um, reseller cut uh, as a result of that. So those are the two monetization strategies that we have at the moment. Maybe there'll be other ways to monetize it, who knows. Um, But like, really, to be honest, what we're most focused on right now is just getting people to use the product. So we're not really super concerned or pushy about revenue. Um, We're much more interested in getting people to play around with it, giving us feedback, learning from our users on like what we can do better and, and improving the product from there. But in, but in a perfect world, you're able to you know, work with some of the best, most popular open source projects, get out of the packaging business because they see the value in it. They are actually creating the packages. They're able to use your SDKs to validate them and then push that as their preferred method for both the open source and the enterprise versions of that product? 100%. Yeah, that's the, that's the long-term goal. And then you mentioned the like the the SSO. Um, is that using Dex, Keycloak, something like that underneath the hood, or did you implement the OIDC provider yourself? Uh, it uses Ori's Hydra project um, for the OAuth handshake, and it, you got to think of it more of as a service provider. As a, Dex is like an identity provider, I guess it might be able to do both. I, I, it's been a long time since I've looked into the docs of it, but um, the applications themselves receive the OIDC login, so it, it, it's not. That side of the side of the side of the um, of the handshake, and then for SSO itself, we use WorkOS, which is a, a SaaS product from some people who actually were at Stripe previously. That does a really good job of like making it really easy to onboard people to S- it's, it, via SSO. Like it has like really good step by step instructions on like setting up SSO with Okta or with Active Directory or. Now, G Suite or any of the other solutions out there, but the big thing is it has directory sync, like a really good implementation of directory sync that's actually usable instead of having to implement SCIM too, um, which is really terrible. <laughs> so. Yeah, <laughs> I think we we looked at implementing it one time, and like at the time there was only like three or four companies that have successfully implemented Skim, and we're like, okay, you know what? There's other solutions here. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was I think I was at replicated when we were looking at that, and I remember the nightmareness of that. Yeah, it's wildly easy now with WorkOS. So I would 100% plug them if anyone was in that in that pain at the moment. Awesome. Yeah. Like the next part, right? Like part of day two operations. You know, we've talked a lot about how easy it is to install. You have Terraform. You can create the Kubernetes cluster. Like, and, and then in updates. But there's also like support, right? Things might not be working right. I might have Airflow running and it fails. Do you get involved in there, or what do you? If I ha- if I'm using, you know, Plural to deploy Airflow and then something's not right, what do I do? Yeah, yeah. So we have a couple of different ways. Uh, one, we have an active Discord channel that people like actually do jump into and ask us for support over. We actually have Intercom as well in our product for people who might need support with like the um, just our web interfaces in general. Uh, but people will ask questions through it through it as well. Long term, we're actually building a support interface in the product. Um, it's not fully. I don't think it's fully ready for prime time at the moment, but. The cool thing about that, and the reason why we're doing it, is we can create incidents proactively with it a lot easier than, you know, like it's not as easy to post a message in Discord or something like that. So it'll create incidents from alert manager, alarms that fire. It'll um, it'll create incidents when a deployment fails. Uh, all sorts of different, like very common failures or configurable variables. Failures you can, you know. As a part of packaging application, you can create your own alerts. For instance, you know, like an alert manager, and it'll it'll pick them up. 
And, and so like that's also meant to help for those like, you know, the, the support experience that you can't plan for um, as easily. Um, and it, it has like a chat interface. It has um, the ability to create Zoom meetings in it and everything like that. So we'll, we'll be making that like a really good, hopefully a good experience for, for triaging issues and managing them. Yeah, I mean, support can be a huge part of the enterprise contracts that you hopefully will be getting a bunch of. Um, all right, so let's switch gears a little bit here. Um, so Plural is an open source project, right? And we'll have a, a link to it in the GitHub uh, in the show notes. But talk to us about like why you started there. Like, wh- What inspired you to do this as an open source thing? I, yeah. I think we've kind of covered this tangentially a little bit already, but I think it's also really interesting if I'm a founder that is interested in, in a separate project, like, was it smart to start open source? To, like, what, were your, what was your thinking behind it? How did you end up doing this open source thing? Um, and then as a follow-up, I want to talk to you a little bit about CNCF stuff, but let, let's just start there. Yeah, 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 for sure. So there's a couple of interesting things that we had to think through when we were starting this. So like, in general, like, the general idea I had starting it, starting Plural was, okay, I know I can deploy applications really, really repeatably with like this interesting dependency-based mechanism that we have with Plural, and it would be a, a pretty cool experience. But like, how do you bootstrap a business around it? And the core problem, like if you're creating a marketplace, ultimately, that's that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to create a, an application marketplace, is like you've got to have some degree of demand in the system for it to, to ever go from zero. And it became pretty apparent like from the start that, oh, there's a ton of existing demand just like with a whole bunch of people who have these crazy operational pains around their open source infrastructure footprint. And we don't have to, you know, like do hard like B2B2B selling to, to get, you know, other other companies to, to get on board. We can just tap right into that problem and fix it. So that was a big deal. Uh, it, once we sort of like settled that, okay, that's the, the set of applications that we want to play with, then it like being an open source project ourselves is like kind of an like an immediate corollary. I, we can't be deploying open source applications and ourselves be closed source. It's like a huge disconnect. The other thing from like a, from a business perspective is, I think people like who still have qualms around the open source model. It's usually around not being able to control IP and all of that. I don't think the long-term value of Plural is really around its IP. It's more around its community and adoption of usage. If there's like a, a massive number of people onboarding on Plural, packaging applications on Plural, that's going to have critical mass and it's not going to be movable. Like it, They're not going to go to an alternative because you have a, you basically create a network effect. There's it, it, a new application, like a new application isn't going to want to go to a competitor if they can't de- depend on all the other things that their, that their architecture needs, like the, the best Postgres operator, the best rapid, the RapidMQ operator, the best uh, Redis deployment and everything like that. And then have that full ecosystem around it alongside not having all the demand already in the system and everything like that. So the, the trade off of, you know, Maybe not having you know like a vice grip control over your IP versus having a really strong goodwill with the the community of users that we hopefully would create and bootstrapping that as quickly as possible was like an obvious choice for us. I mean that that makes a whole bunch of sense. Um, what were what was the challenge? What was one of the challenges? Uh, early challenges on this being an open source project. Obviously, you guys are just getting started. Um, we got to get you some stars. Everyone go to their GitHub and give them a star. Yeah. <laughs> but besides star accumulation, what are some of the early challenges that maybe you didn't expect um, coming from a Facebook and a, and a Twitter experience? I mean, I actually do think the star accumulation thing is you kind of you can kind of like you know push it to the side, but it's, it's actually quite hard. And a lot of the projects that do get really big, I, I think, frankly, it's kind of just a like unpredictable phenomenon that they actually work for, unless it's like there's a very common playbook where where it works, where it's like open source for X, like no code DB is open source for Airtable. Um, uh, that that usually is a pretty consistent playbook, but for the other stuff, it's it's really quite a you know a mixed bag and and being able to create adoption. The other thing that's definitely different is the release process in open source. So you have to be a lot more like. I, you got to do a lot more documentation and uh, a lot more like outward engagement than when you're like deploying in any SaaS service, not necessarily a Facebook, where you just you know you you churn and burn code constantly. You know, you, I, okay, I, I need to fix, I need to add a feature. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna 
program that feature, I'm going to push it to a branch, merge it into merge it into master, and it basically go into production immediately. That's not how it works in open source. You have to kind of have like version releases with with notes and everything like that. So that that, that process is, is definitely a little bit different. So let me ask you this question: uh, When you are doing a release of Plural itself, just walk us through the mechanics there, like uh, like just from an open source perspective of, of doing a release. I mean, again, you guys are early, but <laughs> but it's it's interesting to understand what the requirements are there explicitly. Yeah, so Plural is actually quite complicated in terms of the code base. So it's not just one thing that could theoretically be released. So there's um, app.pluralsh, which has its own repository, pluralsh plural. There's the admin console, which has its own repository, pluralsh console. And our command line interface could also be released at any given time, which has its own repository, pluralsh plural CLI. The, the deployment to pluralsh plural is actually very comparable to any SaaS deployment, although it actually uses plural to deploy itself. So, you know, we'll create a PR, we have a test suite that runs. Um, if everything looks good and we have an approval, we'll merge it. And it'll deploy. It, it, it'll you know bake up Docker images and, and deploy itself uh, out of that. The console is a little bit different because it's, it is deployed to all of our users as well. Um, so it's same same basic you know process where we have a test a, a test suite that runs on PR, merges it. It does go through the integration test framework that I had mentioned, and then it can go to, to users from there. The CLI is actually the most annoying thing to release because it's something you locally install on your machine. So we can't we don't have a like a forced deployment process that can go through Plural itself for people updating it. But we use a system called Go Releaser to um, stage new releases, and it will update a homebrew, a homebrew tab that will allow you to get a, get a new version. So yeah, that's, that's non-trivial. Uh, there's a lot of moving pieces there. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm sure, and as you go further and further into this world, I'm sure you guys are going to automate away. A bunch of those problems. Um, okay, so let's talk a little roadmap. What what is on the roadmap? Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there are a couple of big priorities for us. The one, the biggest priority is around onboarding of users. So we want to. We think that the like getting started experience is still like not perfect, and we we have some improvements in mind for that. One big thing that we've done, and it's actually been in development for a while, is you can actually use Plural in the browser. We have a cloud shell experience where you can you know, provide some infrastructure credentials, the basic setup for a cluster, and it'll go straight into a, a shell which is actually resolving to like a Kubernetes pod with all the command line interfaces and everything installed appropriately, and create your first cluster just right in the browser. And we've done other things with that to make it easier for you to get started. So you can actually use a, a demo GCP project we'll create on the fly to create your first cluster in as well, just to, to test drive the experience and, and see if it's something that you actually want to commit to. And the other thing, that the big thing we're doing in the onboarding like sphere is we're cry, trying to create a fully interactive um, CLI experience where you can just sort of like point and click for all the, all the steps to, to start Plural. Uh, we're using the same framework that K9S uses, if, you, if you're familiar with that tool. Um, that's uh, like a graphical uh, Kubernetes dashboard on the, on the command line. And hopefully we'll be able to like have a really good kind of cool command line experience to to configure your first applications and, and get everything working on Plural. You'll still have the same like Git repository of all the artifacts and the, the, the core experience is different. It's just like a, a better layer on top for interacting with the with the, um, with the various primitives. Yeah, I, what, isn't that called a TUI? Don't we call that a TUI? I actually don't know a terminal UI. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what I've been saying. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Mark, what is that called? Do we know what that's called? That was that was a new one to me. But like that kind of makes sense. Terminal UI. So I've been seeing TUI. I've seen TUI, and I, of course, you know me. I'm going to go TUI on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say so that that's interesting to be able to like build that that terminal UI right into the CLI because then you know you're. You know, you mentioned you know way back at the beginning here that like you know Facebook would invest in these like building these web UIs, and now you you have the tool, you have the UI, it's built right in in order to like avoid the context switching and, and be able to manage and, and like handle the operational challenges of running that software. Yeah, yeah, this usability challenge is actually very different too. Like the the big issue is while we give you like a, a guided recipe for installing things, it's still like. It's really easy to input the wrong information, <laughs> and and the truth is, if you have like a, a something that's imitating like a web form, a, a lot of people will interact with it a lot a lot smoother 
So that's kind of the intuition behind like investing in that sort of th- sort of experience. Um, we we do have a graphical experience for installing applications in our console. It's just you you, you can't go zero to, to zero to console like without doing something. Um, and we want to have the the zero experience also be comparably good. So let's talk a little bit more about the, the the roadmap. Is that where you're focused right now, or are you focused on bringing new open source applications in? Where are you making the biggest investments as a company? So the, the bringing in new open source applications is the other big focus. That's like in terms of like core platform work. That's our main focus. Our main focus is on onboarding experience. What we've done, we also have like. A few DevOps people who are focused on onboarding new applications. We we have two kind of strategies around where we're focusing on the things that we're onboarding. So the first one is um, we're focusing on the data stack. So a lot of these applications I've seen, like people definitely prefer to self-host them. You don't really love having Airflow running in, in separate infrastructure for security reasons. Um, same thing with Airbytes. It, it, oftentimes you can't even connect to the databases that you'd want them to connect to, right? So like there's very common self-hosting problem around them. They're really operationally annoying, <laughs> and they're oftentimes kind of orphaned in terms of your core, like you know, engineering process. Um, so we, we think we can definitely help a lot with that. The other sort of like, I guess you could call it like pillar of applications that we, we're wanting to focus on is what I call like a Kubernetes starter kit. So if you think of like what you actually need to do to, to, to use Kubernetes, it, you never just need a control plane. You also need things like Argo CD. You need something for secret management. So Vault, um, you probably need a, some degree of VPN to get access to the, the internal network for debugging and, and other you know, operational purposes. So what we want to do is, and then obviously you need like kind of the runtime layer stuff that's beyond Kubernetes, like external DNS, certain manager, some ingress controller, some some solution for auto scaling because it's very frequently not always a, a built-in feature for for managed control planes. So what we want to do with Plural is use our deployment system to basically solve for that entire like you know surrounding piece of the Kubernetes world for you, and then you can start using Kubernetes as you would hopefully be able to like really really easily. That's that's cool. That's great. Like so that I get you know not just a best practice and configured airflow in the example that we've been talking about here, but like everything about Kubernetes, like a GitOps and like good secret management and everything out of the box. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that would be more targeted for people who are using that Kubernetes cluster for first party development and not just for actually you know orchestrating their open source infrastructure. So. You know, you, you going back to like you know the the idea that Terraform can be baked in and it can actually create the Kubernetes cluster. Do you see patterns, best practices, any kind of trends around like I have Kubernetes, but now I want Airflow. Should I deploy Airflow into my cluster, or should I bring a, sep- a separate cluster along for it? Like one cluster, many clusters. Like, how do you think about that? The way we've done it, and I don't know necessarily like if it should be considered best practice or not, is we do like have many applications on one cluster. I feel like it depends on the specific application because there are certain applications where this just totally breaks down. Kubeflow is the biggest example. So Kubeflow just is a very invasive product that does a lot of stuff, especially with Istio. And then it's also extremely resource intensive. And I feel like most people should have that just in a dedicated cluster. But you basically lose all the bin packing benefits if you don't. You know, pack multiple applications into the same cluster. So I yeah. can't imagine people wouldn't want to do that. And it's also more operationally complicated to have a lot of a lot of clusters lying around that you have to swap swap between as well. So and, and monitor and everything like that. The last kind of topic that you, we we often like to talk about when we think about open source projects is like community and engaging with the community. So you're the the project. You know, honestly, plural. Like I've seen it, it has quite a lot of depth to it. But like as Benji mentioned earlier, it still doesn't have a lot of stars yet on GitHub. So I'm curious how what you're doing today to engage with the community, both in like issues and you know in roadmap and you know like bug tracking and things like this, and or, or even code contributions in, in any plans that you have to change the way that you're engaging with the community? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> the community stuff is like very much in its infancy, and we the biggest first step we had is we actually just brought in our um, head of community. So it, that's going to be something that uh, he's going to drive on a lot for us. Um, the big things that we're doing currently, and I, I'm sure we'll end up starting creating a whole lot more initiatives around this, is we have uh, bi-weekly demos that we advertise in our Discord channel for anyone who wants to to track our updates. 
we obviously accept issues and pull requests as they come in. Uh, we, we have had a few people, for instance, like improve our airflow deployment. Um, they, we had a user at a company called FSN Capital who wanted to use Cloud SQL for the underlying database and um, modified the deployment to allow that to be a possibility. And and then beyond that, what we'll start doing more is like things like uh, content creation. We'll do really spin up our blog and, and get more out there in terms of, you know, like explaining why we're doing things um, and helping people, you know, learn from our experience as well. So wait, so you guys are, are, are members of cloud CNCF and Linux Foundation, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So what, what does that look like? How, what does it mean being a member in this context? So it's kind of amorphous, like basically we're a sponsor. It, our project is not a CNCF project itself or like a sandbox project at all. And that there's a good chance we won't go through that process for a number of reasons. Uh, but at, at the moment, what it means is we have basically given some sponsorship capital to, to the Linux Foundation and will participate in some in, in a variety of different um, events as a sponsor as well. So things like KubeCon and uh, other Linux Foundation events. That I can't remember all of them. There's a, there's a kind of... A lot of them. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we have to ask, why not CNCF Sandbox? It's early, so it's. I think it's unfair to commit either way. Um, it's very early for you guys. But preliminarily, what are your thoughts on on being a CNCF project? I think for a lot of the projects that that, that do it, it's an obvious no brainer win for them because it's like it's such a huge stamp of approval. There's a few things that are a consequence of it that we don't specifically like. The first big one is they take ownership of the brand of the product. And like in theory, that might not be the biggest deal. Like it, 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 most of the companies around CNCF projects, like you can take uh, as an example, um, Crossplane. They, they have a company around it as well, um, but it's not called Crossplane. It's, it's very different. And that, that this is the problem, right? So like you, you don't associate the company with the project as a result of the brand transfer. The other thing is, I don't know. It's not straightforward for me to figure out what decomposable piece of plural is something that would be good in a CNCF as a CNCF project, because the system is pretty tightly coupled. Like the admin console really needs to have the the CLI and the API. The API doesn't really make sense unless it has all the the admin console and the CLI to interact with it. Yeah. And so, like, it, it maybe we could like factor out some portion of the CLI and make it a, a, a CNCF project, but it, it just doesn't really make a, a whole lot of sense and, a, independently. So th- that was the other big thing. I, we think of ourselves more as an open source project in like line, like in the vein of something like GitLab where it's you know a dual license open source project. We're going to like be extremely transparent about the source code that we have, but it's not necessarily a standard CNCF model as, as a result of all those complexities. I mean that that makes a whole lot of sense. I hate to admit it, but not every project should be a CNCF project. I guess is what you're forcing out of me. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah, True. yeah. A, a lot of the things that go into CNCF are like, I, I think they're kind of like cloud equivalents of you know like the standard like GNU like Unix tools in some ways. You know, like there's like very like focused specific tool for a specific job types of things. Like you know, et cetera, a really good you know uh, CP key value store, and that's all it is. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's at CD. <laughs> okay, yeah, at CD. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, 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 yeah, but like Plural is like such a kind of it, it's a very it, it's a platform basically at the end of the day, and so it just doesn't. It just doesn't fit in my mind. No, that's it's a look. People that are listening to, to us right now, you know, they have things to understand, and it's really important to hear both sides yeah. of, of that story. So that, I think that's super, that's super interesting uh, way to think about it. So we're recording this pretty early, right before KubeCon, but I know that there might be some stuff coming up when we release this, which is probably going to be towards the end of June. Do you have anything you want to you know tell us about, or anything we should keep an eye out for? Yeah, that's. I think that's too TBD. I, I think one of the things that we're definitely excited to, to show off of when it's when it's ready is we're redesigning like our the, the entire um, user interface for um, app.pluralsh, and it'll hopefully be a lot a lot slicker and a lot more usable. Um, so that that's the one that that's probably the biggest like real huge chunk of new product that we'll be be releasing, and I, I think that 
that two-way experience as well will be really cool when that's, that's also done. I, they're always like, I don't know, like I, they always kind of blow my mind. So No, that's great. Um, well, look, Michael, we really appreciate having you on. Learned a lot here. I, I plan to go dig into a few things here and really excited to uh, see how you guys progress. Um, really appreciate you coming on. And uh, I look forward to probably getting you back on here in a year or two and, and seeing where, what you've done. And I, I, thanks for having me. We definitely appreciate having the opportunity to share about what we're doing here. So really, really do appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. That's all we have time for today. If you're the maintainer of a CNCF project and would like to be a guest on this show, head over to kublist.com. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks and content on sales, marketing, product, and more for founders of developer tools companies. And this podcast is brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.